no film lovers can ever marry me. If they got an American actress to slant her eyes and eyebrows and wear a stiff black wig, it would be all right. But me? I am really Chinese, so I must always die in the movie so that the white girl with the yellow hair may get the man. That is Dr. Karen Leong, quoting the woman who was a huge movie star in the 1920s and 30s, Anna Mae Wong. Today, Wong may be best known for her fight against anti-Asian racism, but she should also be remembered for her captivating talent. After all, this is the actress who almost overshadowed Marlena Dietrich in the movie Shanghai Express. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. If anyone can tell us about the impact of Anna Mae Wong, it's Dr. Karen Leong. Dr. Karen Leong is Professor of Women and Gender Studies and Asian Pacific American Studies at Arizona State University. She's also the author of The China Mystique, Pearl S. Buck, Anna Mae Wong, Meiling Sungcheng, and The Transformation of American Orientalism. Thanks to Dr. Leong, we got a fascinating look at Hollywood's first Asian-American movie star. Listen and learn why Anna Mae Wong is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. I'm here today with Dr. Karen Leong. She is an expert on many things, but today we're here to talk about the celebrated movie star Anna Mae Wong. Asian actors have been in the news somewhat, especially since the Oscars, but we're here to talk about the movie star of the 20s and 30s. Karen, many people may not know about Anna Mae Wong's claim to fame, her lasting impact. Why is it important that we know about her? You've written extensively about her, and we're just delighted to have you introduce her to all of us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Anna Mae Wong is the first Chinese-American and Asian-American actress to have starred in studio films, both The Silence and The Talkies, beginning in the late 1920s. She has been one of the few Asian-American stars until very recently, and One of the reasons she's so well-known is not only because of her striking ability to perform emotions in the silent films, but also her abilities and her talents that were obscured by racism. So what's really interesting is today she's almost known more for her fight against the racism she faced in the Hollywood film industry and in the United States than she is for some of her roles. And I think because of Ryan Murphy's series, Hollywood, where she was one of the featured characters and well-played by Michelle Krusiak, people are beginning to pay more attention to her again, and they are seeing, again, her beautiful performances on film that have been preserved. Well, interesting, and and also that uh, she confronted the racism uh, that existed during her time. How did she manage to become a star despite that? Well, you know, she started off as an extra and her father owned a Chinese laundry 
um, as it was advertised. And it was on the outskirts of Chinatown because, of course, his clientele would not be in Chinatown. And some of the people that used the laundry were involved in the industry. Rob Wagner wrote a column, and he pretty much was one of her mentors as she entered into Hollywood. She talked about going by the set and just being fascinated, and she was able to catch the eye of casting directors and be in sort of these small extra roles, often in servant roles. But it was when she was chosen and cast in Douglas Fairbank Jr.'s The Thief of Baghdad as a slave girl that she really stood out on screen, literally, and she was then cast in many more parts. She was not able to find much many roles in Hollywood, but she went, she traveled. And travel, interestingly, opened up more opportunities for her in Great Britain and also in Germany, where she starred in some silent films that are quite beautiful if you have a chance to see them. And then she was cast, being in Berlin, I believe um, she's, she's, there's a famous picture of her with Lenny Reifenstahl and Marlene Dietrich. And she interacted with people in Berlin in the 1930s and was then cast early on in 1932 Shanghai Express, which was a full studio production by Paramount and directed by Joseph von Sternberg. And it's a beautiful film because it had all those production values. And she really almost stole the scenes from Marlene Dietrich when she was the same scenes with her. And she played a courtesan in that film. And so I think that's how she really, that was her largest role in the biggest movie probably, but she did continue to star in B films and lesser known films after that. So her breakthrough really came in Europe. Her breakthrough really did come through with, um, in London with the um, DuPont films. She, they were able to see her, talent and ability, especially in the silent films that she was in the late 1920s. And she was just beautiful on on screen in the black and white film. She was just absolutely beautiful. And she also became a fashion icon as a result, too. But yes, there was this really interesting competition happening between Hollywood and Europe film industries at the time. And in a way, Anna Mae Wong really played off of that to position herself as a star in Great Britain, and she was able to talk much more openly about the racism she faced in the United States. And it was it was really interesting how she was able to parlay that in a way into more marketability for the British film industry. They were able to sort of point out how much more open they were um, to talent and um, contrast themselves with the U.S. industry. So for the most part, were Asian Americans during her time in the 20s and 30s mostly cast in those roles that you mentioned, servants, uh, slaves, and the like? If at all, not even then, usually. Um, Part of this was there was not many roles at all for Asian American males, and there were very few roles for Asian Americans at the time. Many Asian Americans at the time were still immigrants. There was a very small second generation community of which Anna Mae Wong was like less than 70 young Chinese American women in Los Angeles at the time. And that was a reason. But many of the reasons was that 
Asian American or Asian roles were still played by people in yellow face. Or if they were extras, many of those those roles would be cast by Mexican Americans or other, even if they're really far away, they could just be anyone in a costume. So there were very few roles, even for the featured pit bits, the featured roles that Anna Mae Wong would play in some of the early films she was in. So yellowface would be when white actors used makeup to try to look Asian. Did she ever comment on that, how she felt about that? Yes, um, both directly and indirectly. I mean, more indirectly, she spoke about the ways in which she could not be cast in certain roles. And the reason why was also structural. There was the Hayes Code that was instilled to promote morality among the in the film industry. This was after the Fatty Arbuckle scandal. And part of ideas of morality was not including interracial romance. There could be lo- no love or sex shown between uh, people of different races. And so she, on screen, therefore, was really limited in the role she could play because so much of Hollywood films were structured around the white heterosexual romance in which, of course, there's a young woman, a young man, they fall in love they break up, and then at some point they have a happily ever after. And so she could never be part of the happily ever after. And she even um, had some quotes about this. She said in 1931, she even said, no film lovers can ever marry me. If they got an American actress to slant her eyes and eyebrows and wear a stiff black wig and dress in Chinese costumes, it would be all right. But me? I am really Chinese, so I must always die in the movie so that the white girl with the yellow hair may get the man. Oh, how painful. Yes, she talked about having to die a thousand deaths in another interview. Because, again, of that morality clause, she could not be the protagonist, the female protagonist. She could not fall in love. So she had to be the threat to the actual white heterosexual romance. And as a result... Any immorality or any crime had to have the ending deemed correct by the code, which was death or imprisonment. And for her, it often was death. So even in a British interview, she talked about how even young children would be afraid of her and think she had a knife up her sleeve because of the characters and the role she played on screen. And interestingly, this even got her in trouble with the Chinese nationalist government In the 1930s, even though she was doing so much activist work to support them and to raise awareness about the Chinese being attacked by Japan at the time, and they would publicly turn down, you know, having her as an advocate for China, even though they happily accepted her fundraising, because they said she shamed China with her depictions. She was so burdened uh, by this in, in so many ways. You know, I I know among the things that you teach at Arizona State is social transformation. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether or not there's a continuum or a connection between what she experienced uh, with racism and what is happening today in the rise of violence against Asian Americans. That's a really great connection to make. And yes, 
they are connected. Unfortunately, while we like to teach about social transformation and the power of people to transform our society, sometimes systemic racism and other systems of oppression, like sexism, and Anna Mae Wong was faced with both sexism and racism during her lifetime, those are much harder to transform. And she her treatment, her depiction as either a prostitute, she often, even if she played a slave, she wore very little. And she was criticized by this by the Chinese nationalists who wanted to show themselves as a modern nation. She was criticized by her own ethnic community because she was she brought shame because of the role she depicted, but also because acting was not seen as an honorable profession among Chinese immigrants. And yet those images she portrayed still linger today. And this idea of Asian woman and Asian American woman is highly sexualized. We can see that even in popular culture. On Saturday Night Live, there would be jokes often about the sexuality of Asian American woman being different they have would have different sexual organs than, you know, white woman or European American woman. They would be highly sexualized and assumed to be prostitutes, similar to how in the 19th century, Chinese women were barred from entering the United States if U.S. officials thought they were prostitutes. And in generally, most of them assumed Chinese women were prostitutes in the 19th century. And that assumption led to further assumptions that Chinese in general, did not value families because they they only treated women like prostitutes, which was absolutely wrong. And it was a function of the Page Law of 1875 that the U.S. passed, not Chinese culture. And that led to accusations that Chinese were not ever going to be good Americans, which led to Chinese exclusion being passed in 1882. Now, that exclusion, that idea that people of Asian descent we're always going to be foreign, would never actually fully be American, continues to be an issue today among Asian America. And Asian America today is over 60% are not U.S. born. And there is this fear among them today about being attacked, about being seen as carrying a virus that has been associated with China, that has been racialized and nationalized as Chinese, when viruses are not actually, um, they aren't capable of being, I mean, they're not actually inherently raced. Um, and so we, we see that these assumptions continue to take on new forms and yet continue to carry the same violent effects. And sexual violence against Asian American women is quite high. We see that they've been um, still associated with sexual temptation, according to the shooter in Atlanta. And we still see this ongoing attempt to for Asian Americans to be able to claim to be fully American, which many are and many want to be. So we again, yes, there is this continual line of exclusion that can happen, even though at the same time, Chinese and Asian American labor and skills and talent are necessary to the development of the United States today and even in the past. And Asian Americans have made enormous contributions to our society. Uh, it is just maddening to see how these attitudes and mindsets and biases continue to play such a harmful role 
and really prey on people who don't deserve any of this clearly. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. I've been thinking as you're talking about some of the varied portrayals of Asian and Asian Americans in movies today mm. uh, and TV shows as well. You know, I think about Crazy Rich Asians or Fresh Off the Boat. What do you think Anna Mae Wong would have felt about this? You know, I think she would have been really excited. She was slated to be in the film version of Flower Drum Song. And Flower Drum Song was the first Broadway musical that focused on an Asian-American family. It focused on Chinese-Americans and intergenerational conflict. And she was going to play a role in that film before she passed away. And I think she would have been really happy to see these greater opportunities for Asian-American actors to play roles that are more relevant. Although I honestly don't think Crazy Rich Asians is very relevant to many no. Asian Americans. <laughs> I think that actually creates more uh, problematic stereotypes about class and wealth um, that are not totally true about Asian Americans. But I do think that she would have been really happy. I think she would have been proud of these opportunities. I think she would have been cheering so many of these actors on. I do think she would have loved to have been a mentor, even, you know, for Nancy Kwan and others in the 60s and 70s, um, if she were still around. So I think she would have been incredibly proud and happy. But I also think she would have recognized that this could also be fleeting. She would have also recognized the ongoing systemic racism not just against Asian Americans, but other groups. You know, she was a really good friend with Paul Robeson and his wife, Islanda. And she understood how the way society was structured was really based on inequality. And she really fought for that. And she saw that in an unequal way that China during the 1920s and 30s had been treated as well. And I think she would have been very active in today's movements to raise awareness about that inequality. And I think she would have fought very hard for social justice, even as she fought to raise awareness about exploitation of workers and other causes with which um, Paul Robeson also was associated. You know, um, in recent weeks, ramping up to the Oscars and then since, there's been so much comment uh, about Asian Americans in films. Uh, how do you think she would have felt watching the Oscars the other night? I think she would have been really delighted at the Best Director Award because you know, she very early on tried to start her own production company. She traveled to China where she had never been before, even though she was so associated with it growing up. Her first time to China, her only time to China was in 1936, and she brought along a camera, and she was hoping to create a film about her experiences there. And so I think to see the rich, diverse industry that has developed in China and in Hong Kong, that has developed among the Asian diaspora and Asian nations, I think she would have been really thrilled that Asian artistry and skill is finally being acknowledged in the United States. 
Um, even last year with um, the Korean uh, Best Picture Award, that I think she would have been very proud of that as well in terms of being able to say that the world now could see what Asia can produce. It seems like there's so much more she would have done had her life not been cut short. She died fairly young, did she not? Yes, she did. She died very, you know, very young. And, you know, I'm sure some of that had to do with the challenges that she was continually fighting in her career for recognition and for opportunities. Yeah, and all the stress probably that that imposed. You know, you have written about her, you have studied her, you obviously feel this deep kinship. I, I wonder what lessons or inspiration we can take from her life. You know, being able to really learn more about her, especially her earlier years, you know, Shirley Lim writes about her later years, but something that both of us recognize in the work we've done about Anna Mae Wong is how she continually sought to learn. She sought out new experiences. She defied the expectations that were set upon her. And she recognized that she had so many affiliations. She cannot be simply pigeonholed to one identity. She really had this intersectional, um, her, she was intersectionally located in U.S. society in many ways, from being Chinese American to being rejected in her own community to seeking visibility and recognition in Hollywood and the cost of that visibility because being able to be cast in films like other women of color actresses often meant taking less than ideal roles. But still, she pursued her passion. She pursued what she really loved to do and what she was good at. And she continually sought how to create those opportunities for herself. And I think that was so impressive. And I think it shows how much she believed in herself and how she also wasn't afraid to speak up against those structural obstacles like racism in ways that were often very witty. So she was able to be charming at it and yet also really pinpoint what was happening. And I think those are really inspiring traits. Absolutely. You know, Karen, I I didn't know um, much, if at all, about Anna Mae Wong, and I think my situation is probably similar to most of our listeners. And after hearing you speak about her so eloquently today, I wonder, for those of us who would like to learn more, besides reading your book, which we should absolutely do, and maybe you can tell us about it, uh, what movies of hers uh, should we see? Why should we see them? And how can they be accessible to us? Well, thank you for mentioning my book. Um, it's She's actually one of three women, um, Anna Mae Wong, Pearl Buck, and Mei Lung Sung Chang. I, I relate them to each other as located at a particular moment in time when China emerges from being seen as backwards by the United States to being a potential Democrat ally, ally and the role that these three women played in that shift. I think that Shirley Lim's book, Anna Mae Wong, Performing the Modern, is an excellent book and shows insights about her that are really important and talk about the continual reinvention of herself. But in terms of the films, I do recommend Shanghai Express. I think that shows what she was capable of, even though she, most of the films she was in did not have those production values. I would watch Piccadilly, which is a silent film that was made in Great Britain, and I believe it's now available on YouTube. The online archive has just 
transformed and so much about her is available online, including magazine articles and photographs. Daughter of Shanghai is a film in which she played a Chinese-American heroine who's fighting against um, the, a plot to take down the United States or to, you know, to harm the United States. And she's starring alongside her friend, Korean-American Philip Ahn. They both grew up in L.A. together. It's delightful. Um, again, the production values are not wonderful, but it shows one of the first and earlier portrayals of Asian Americans as Asian Americans, not speaking with pigeon accents. Toll of the Sea is a beautiful silent film. It's it's a very tragic story, unfortunately, but it has really good production values, so I highly recommend that. And finally, I personally love Lady from Chungking, and this is a film that was made by a very small outfit that I believe might have only been created to create two films about China during uh, the 1930s when they were um, at war with Japan. And it's remarkable. It, it really lacks production values, but <laughs> it the story is really heroic. It's so antithetical to anything that Hollywood had produced at the time. And you can see her passion and how it brings together her love of China, her desire for better roles. It's feminist in many ways, even though they didn't use that term back then, because it shows this remarkable woman leader who's like defending the Chinese people. And the ending scene, and I wrote about this in my dissertation, when she's shot and killed by the Japanese, and she still rises above, her spirit rises above her body on the ground, and she keeps speaking about China. If you can look past the production values, you can really see Anna Mae Wong, I swear, in that characterization. And I really recommend that. And I believe it is on YouTube now. It's just amazing. And we can hear your passion about her, what she represented, her time, and what is still troubling our societies today that she had to deal with all of those years ago. So, Dr. Karen Leong, thank you so much for introducing us to Anna Mae Wong uh, and for helping us understand, too, that struggle against violence against Asian Americans that is still regrettably a part of our society. So it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I learned so much about Anna Mae Wong in Hollywood from Dr. Leung. Here are three things I took away from that conversation. First, now is a great time for us to get acquainted with Anna Mae Wong, her life, her fight to be heard, and her incredible talent that radiates through even dated and stereotyped movie roles. Second, We need to recognize that even though our country has come a long way since the 1920s, there's still much work to do. Yes, some Asian American actors and directors are winning big roles and taking home awards, but anti-Asian racism remains a problem, one we can all stand up to. Finally, we should be grateful that we're living at a time when we have access to the movie treasures of the past, 
we have the opportunity to appreciate Anime Wong's performances in movies like Shanghai Express, Piccadilly, and Lady from Shangxing. And to learn even more, check out Dr. Leong's book, The China Mystique, Pearl S. Buck, Anime Wong, and Mei Ling Sung Chung, and The Transformation of American Orientalism, as well as Shirley Lim's book, Anime Wong, Performing the Modern. Tune in next Thursday to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.